Good morning, Fellowship. I want to introduce you to today's speaker, Robbie Painter. Robbie leads the Young Life Ministry at Brentwood High School and is the director of Young Life for all of Williamson County. If you're not familiar with Young Life, picture 200 high school kids from every kind of background crowded into a room, way too small for them, playing ridiculous games, singing at the top of their lungs, and hearing the gospel. That's what happens on Thursday nights at our Brentwood campus in our barn where the Brentwood High School Young Life meets. We are so glad to host them and we're so grateful for Robbie's leadership and heart for these students. Robbie's been attending fellowship for more than 20 years. He's partnered with us as one of our local missionaries. He's married to Katie. They have three daughters, Macy, Winslow, and Rosie, and they attend our Brentwood campus. When Lloyd and I were looking ahead to today's passage, we wanted to bring in someone who is not only an outstanding teacher, but someone who embodies the heart of this text, and Robbie immediately came to mind. I know you're gonna enjoy and appreciate what he shares. Let's welcome Robbie Painter. Good morning, fellowship, how are we? Feeling good? As Rob said, my name's Robbie, and I feel honored. I feel nervous. I feel excited. I feel all the things uh, to be with you this morning and open up the scriptures together. When I was in college at the University of Tennessee, Go Vols, I was in between classes, and I was a Young Life leader in college. So I was at the Young Life house, and my friend Josh was there. And Josh was a huge Detroit Tigers baseball fan. And the Tigers were playing in the World Series that night in St. Louis against the Cardinals. And Josh was like, we gotta go to this game. Like, this is my team, we're in the World Series. But I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we're two broke college kids. We can't buy a World Series. The game's that night. It's like, what are you talking about? And Josh gets an idea, a little twinkle in his eye. And he looks at me and he goes, what if we just try to sneak in? How hard could that be? It's just a World Series. We're like, I don't know, we look it up. It's like the weather, it might rain. It's an eight hour car trip to get to St. Louis. We're supposed to be going to class. So we decide we'll make the decision like you make all major decisions in college. <laughs> coin flip, right? Heads, we go try to sneak in the World Series. Tails, we go to class. So we got the coin, we flipped it. You know where this is going. It was heads. We jump in the car off to go try to sneak in the World Series. Eight hours later, we pull into St. Louis. We park the car, it's raining a little bit. And we're like, okay, what's the game plan? How are we gonna do this? You would have thought we would have spent some of the eight hours in the car talking about this game plan. We did not. So we get out, we start walking around the stadium. It's a new stadium at the time. And so there's some construction still happening on the back end of the stadium. So we, we might've jumped a fence. It's hard to remember, hard to say. We get to the back of the stadium and there's a, a door with a little window that kind of goes into a stairwell. We look in the window and we see there's a guy in the stairwell. So we kind of knock on the window. He looks at us, we kind of like smile at him and point down at the door handle and he opens up the door. And so we now step into the building. We're in a stairwell, but we're in, we're in the stadium. So there's some stairs, there's a door at the top and we're like, okay, we're gonna open up this door. There's gonna be a ticket line. We're gonna get kicked out of here. And so we kind of go up the stairs. We barely open up the door and look in and there was no ticket line. And I'm not kidding, we walked into the box level VIP section of the stadium. <laughs> Everyone was in full suits. They all had like their ticket laminated with like a lanyard around their neck. And we we're like, we did it. We snuck in the World Series. So we go get a hot dog, souvenir beverage, off to find our seats. 
And that's when uh, over the intercom, I hear a sentence that sends my heart into my stomach. The sentence was this, ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you that this game has been canceled due to rain. <laughs> yeah, they're like, all of your tickets will be refunded. It's like, we don't have tickets, we stuck in. And that's it, that's the end of the story. Everyone left the stadium. Me and Josh, we sat in these two seats. We were the last people to leave. It was raining on us. Our arms were around each other. We were like, we did it. We snuck into the World Series. Didn't get to see a pitch, but it counts. I've done it. You know that feeling of your heart kind of sinking? Like you hear something, you just, it sinks down into your gut. Uh, this morning, as we have arrived at John chapter four, we're gonna look at a story of a woman who hears some words actually from Jesus that sends her heart into her gut. Um, let's jump in together. This is John chapter four, verse one says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So the Pharisees are realizing, man, Jesus' ministry's growing. More people are following him. They're baptizing more people. And Jesus being aware of that decides, all right, it's time to go. They're gonna leave Judea in the South. They're going up North to Galilee. And John gives us that little detail, I think it's in verse four, where he said, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. We need to put a pin in that. We're gonna come back to that later. The last person we saw Jesus encounter and interact with was Nicodemus from chapter three. Here are some things about that story. He was a man, he came at night. He was named, moral, religious, theologically trained, influential. And now in chapter four, we're about to watch Jesus encounter the polar opposite. Chapter four, a woman, she comes in the day, unnamed, immoral past, irreligious, uneducated, insignificant. So in chapter three, we're watching Jesus interact with the top of the ladder, the top rung, Nicodemus, a Jewish religious elite. And one chapter later, we have now descended to the bottom rung, a Samaritan woman. As commentator Dale Bruner put it, Jesus has come for the whole ladder from top to bottom. And Jesus is about to give us a masterclass on how do you engage with someone who is living a life disconnected from God, someone at the bottom of the ladder. John tells us it's the sixth hour, which means it's noon. So the class bell is ringing for us. Uh, let's learn together. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. All right, so I want you to try to picture this, like you're watching it on a movie. This woman comes up, she's got her jar, she's holding it, she gets to the well, she's sees there's a Jewish man there she doesn't recognize. She probably just tries to go about her business, not make eye contact, just gonna start filling up my jar with water. And then she hears Jesus say, hey, will you give me a drink? She freezes. 
Her guard goes up, her mind starts racing. Why is he talking to me? What does he, what does he really want? Am I safe here? So she shoots back at him. Hey, why, why are you talking to me? Gives us that detail there. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's because when King Solomon died in the Old Testament, they, uh, the kingdom was split, the north and south. And the northern kingdom got invaded by the Assyrians and they conquered it. So they exiled a bunch of Israelites out of the north and they settled the land with foreigners. The remaining Israelites in the north, they intermixed, intermarried with those foreigners, mixing cultures, races, religions. As you can imagine, the, the Israelites in the south, they weren't too happy about that, what was going on in the north. My oldest daughter, Maisie, and I have read through the Harry Potter series. Any Harry Potter fans out there? About one of you, beautiful. Um, there's this phrase in Harry Potter, this term, that's called a pure blood wizard. I know I just lost half of you, but stick with me. A pure blood wizard is a wizard whose parents were both wizards. Their parents were wizards and their parents were wizards and so on. But some wizards in the Harry Potter universe, only one of their parents was a wizard. The other parent was a non-wizard, a normal human, also known as a muggle. Some wizards, both of their parents were non-wizards. And the pure blood wizards, they had this uh, derogatory slur, this word they used when talking down to a wizard like that. They called them mudbloods. You're a mudblood, you have dirty blood. The pure blood of a wizard mixed with that of a normal human. So the Jews, they saw Samaritans as mudbloods. The pure blood of an Israelite mixed, dirtied, impure with a foreigner. You're, you're less than, it's been tainted. So this woman goes to Jesus, why, why are you? a Jewish pureblood talking to me, a Samaritan mudblood, let alone asking me for help, for water. See how Jesus responds. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You greater than our father, Jacob. He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus begins to take the conversation a little bit deeper and he does it by appealing to her curiosity. Do you see that? He's like, there's something you don't know. But if you knew it, oh man, it would change everything for you. If you only, if you only knew the gift of God, what's he talking about there? What, what is the gift of God? No surprise, commentators, Think different things. Some say it's the law. Some say it's salvation, others forgiveness. You know, while all of those are certainly gifts of God, right? I believe they're all kind of wrapped up in a, in a much bigger gift. Bible trivia time. This should be easy because we just talked about this. Fill in the next word. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave. The greatest gift of all, God himself among us as Jesus and later on as the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, if you only knew who you're talking to, you'd be asking me for water and I would give you living water. The woman's confused, right? She's like, wait a second. I thought you were asking me for water. Now you're saying you have water for me? Where are you getting this water, huh? 
and your water's better than this water? What, what do you think you're better than Jacob? Jesus' appeal to her curiosity, it's working. He's drawn her in. She's confused, but intrigued, want to know more. So this is what Jesus says next. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I love what Jesus is doing here. He's taking this natural conversation about a topic this woman knows well, thirst, water, these trips back and forth to the well. And he's turning it. He's turning it into a conversation about God. He's like, hey, anyone who drinks of this water, they're gonna get thirsty again. They're gonna have to keep coming back here. You can kind of see the woman just nodding her head with him. Yeah, yeah, I know, she's tracking. Says anyone who drinks of the water that I give, they'll never thirst again. Not only that, they will turn into a fountain of living water bubbling up into eternal life. And the woman goes, give me that water. I want that water. But she still doesn't quite understand. She's still a little confused. She's still thinking on this kind of external physical way. She's like, if I had that water, I would never get thirsty again. I would never have to come back to this well, please. So now's the time in the conversation when Jesus decides it's time to reveal to her the type of water he's actually talking about. And to do it, he begins to press ever so gently but firmly on the most tender part of this woman's heart. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. So Jesus goes, okay, go grab your husband, come back, we'll, we'll talk some more. The woman's like, oh, me? I, uh, I don't have a husband. You kind of see Jesus crack a smile. He's like, yeah, you're right. What you said is true. Then the sentence that sends her heart into her stomach. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now, he's not even your husband, right? John begins to give us a peek into the life of this woman. She's had five husbands. We're not given any more details than that. Maybe all five of them died tragically. Maybe all five of them cheated on her, divorced her, kicked her to the curb, or a bitter cocktail of those two that she's had to drink five different times. We don't know. We don't know the details, but we can be confident of this. When Jesus brings up her past, it brings her feelings of pain and shame. Pain over the loss of a loved one, shame over infidelity, multiple divorces. Then Jesus says, hey, the man you're sleeping with now, he's not even your husband, which means he's someone else's husband or they're just not married and they're sleeping together. See what Jesus is doing? He brings that up. 
And so the woman, um, well, I'll say this. There's this book called uh, Under the Banner of Heaven. And the author, John Krakauer, he, uh, he's not a believer, doesn't believe in God. And he wrote this book about the Mormon faith, actually. He researched it. He wrote this book that kind of talked about the origins of it through the lens of this murder that happened in the community. And he's a self-proclaimed agnostic, like I said. But I want you to hear, I want you to hear the last paragraph of this book, the very final paragraph, in light of this woman, right? She's here at this well at noon, the hottest part of the day. Maybe some of you know that back in Jesus' time, the women, they would go and fetch water together in the cool of the day. It was a social time for them to be able to talk about their lives, what's been going on, the the gossip of the day. But this woman, she no longer feels welcome at the social scene. She's here at noon. So she doesn't have to deal with the condescending looks, you know, the passive aggressive comments, the judgmental eyes. She'd rather just be alone. Pain and shame. Have that in your mind as you listen to this quote. The final paragraph of this book says this. I don't know if God even exists. Nevertheless, I've arrived at an understanding. Most of us yearn to comprehend how we got here and why, which is to say, most of us ache to know the love of our creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache for as long as we happen to be alive. Isn't that fascinating? This guy doesn't even believe in God saying, we all have an ache to know the love of our creator. To put it in Jesus' metaphor, we all have a deep thirst to know the love of our creator. Not a physical, external thirst, but a thirst of the heart. That our hearts, you know, it's thoughts, emotions, desires, choices, they are all thirsting to know the love of our creator. And Jesus is looking at this woman saying, hey, you know that thirst, even though you heard Carl talk about, that thirst, that soul thirst that's led you to guy after guy after guy. It's a thirst to know the love of God. It's a thirst for Jesus. And it's the same for us, right? It's true for us. The thirst we feel to be fully known, deeply loved, to matter. It's a thirst for Jesus. The thirst we have to be successful, to get recognition, to get praise, applause, approval, to climb the ladder, to be the best. It is a thirst for Jesus, a heart thirst to know the love of our creator that's not dependent on our appearance or performance. The thirst we have for more, you know, bigger, better, newer, next, the next phone, the next car, the next job, the next house, the next relationship, the next level of financial freedom. It is a thirst for Jesus, a thirst to know in our heart, the love of our creator that can actually bring contentment into our lives. The thirst that I've had ever since Rob and Lloyd asked if I would talk up here, the thirst for you to like me, to think I'm doing a good job. The thirst for Rob and Lloyd to be proud, even impressed. It is a thirst for Jesus in me. 
a heart thirst to know, even if I blow it up here, God will not take his love away from me. He won't do it. You might be wondering, why is Jesus pressing like this? Why is he doing it this way? Why is he bringing up her past? These things that can make her feel pain and shame. Why is he pressing like this? The great theologian, John Stott has this quote that says, faith is born out of need. Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him or their unwillingness to admit it. Jesus is tapping on the need of this woman's heart. The five men, the man she was in bed with last night, her unquenched heart. He's saying, I have water for that. My water is for that. That if you wanna experience this water bubbling up inside of you into eternal life, all you need is need. All you need is need. Isn't that great news? You know what Jesus doesn't say? Hey, you know who this water's for? You know who gets my living water? Those who put in the most effort. Those who are the strongest. Those who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Those with the best faith who never make mistakes. No. You know what he says? You know who this living water's for? The thirsty. The thirsty. Those who have a need and they know it those who don't feel like they're measuring up, those who are in darkness and hurting, those whose hearts have been broken and shattered, Jesus says, I have water for you. My water is for them. So if you're here this morning and your heart is heavy, broken by the cruelty of living in a fallen world, feel like you don't have it all together, you're not good enough, if you've made a mess of your life, you don't have to cover that up. You don't have to act like that's not there and push that down. No, that is the very thing God is wanting you to bring to him. It's the very place he's wanting to meet you in, in your need, in your thirst. All you need is need. So Jesus is tapping on the need of this woman's heart. Here's how she responds. Verse 19 The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus pressing on this woman's heart, on her knee, this internal thing. What's the woman do? She dodges it, deflects it. She goes back external. She brings up this external question of the day they had. Samaritans, they had a temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews, their temple on Mount Moriah. She's like, hey, where's the right temple to worship? Right, this external question. And how Jesus answers is brilliant. He's bringing the focus back to her heart, back to the internal. It's like, hey, a a time's coming. It's not gonna matter where you worship, but God is seeking people to worship with spirit and truth. Back to the internal. The where you worship, the location, worship's not about a location, not anymore. 
Worship is about a, an inward drawing, or better said, an, an inward drinking of the love of your creator. The water bubbles up from inside of someone, right? It didn't, didn't say, hey, it bubbles up and flows out of the temple. No, the water bubbles up and overflows from inside of somebody. He brings her attention back to her heart, back to the internal. And here's how she responds. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she kind of goes, okay, listen, I know the Messiah's coming. When he gets here, he'll explain all this. Jesus leans in, locks eyes with her and essentially says, you're talking to him. You're talking to him. She is face to face with the heart quencher. And this is where Robin Lloyd told me I had to stop, which is cruel. What a cliffhanger, right? My goodness. But spoiler alert, all right, spoiler alert. This woman will drink deep of the living water of the love of her creator. And she will be turned into a fountain of water that will bubble up and overflow on her entire town. But that's next week. That's next week. As I said in the beginning, Jesus is giving us a masterclass on how you engage with people who are living disconnected from God, living in darkness, living at the bottom of the ladder. How do you engage with people like that? I believe there's five things we can learn from Jesus in this story. We're gonna move through them quick. The first one, we'll put them all up on the slides. He intentionally pursued, met her where she was, Remember that little detail I told you to put a pen in where it says Jesus had to go through Samaria? Interesting thing is he didn't have to do that. Actually, the more popular route for Jews of the day, they'd go around Samaria. They didn't have to deal with the Samaritans. They'd go around it. But John said Jesus had to go through Samaria. I believe that's because Jesus had a date with a woman at a well and he wouldn't miss it for the world. He pursued her. He sought her out right where she was at a well in the heat of the day. Next one, he relationally connected, accepted her as she was. Their conversation was so natural, that back and forth. He didn't lead with her sin. He wasn't like, hey, will you give me a drink of water? But before you do, let's talk about this guy you're sleeping with, right? He didn't lead with condemnation or correction, but with tenderness, kindness, he made her feel respected and valued. Who knows if she's ever felt like that from a man. Next one, he compassionately cared, engaged her story. This is important. Jesus was interested in her story, not her mistakes. He was interested in her heart, not her past behavior. He lived out the old saying, you know, that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. He was proving to her that he cared about her uniquely. Next one, he patiently clarified, processed alongside her. He went along for the ride, the whole conversation, right? The ups and downs, twists and turns, the misunderstandings, the confusions, the dodges, the deflections. He just went along for the ride. He never got flustered. He never got impatient. He never got upset that she didn't understand what he was talking about. He just processed alongside her the whole way through. And the last one, he continually proclaimed, he shared the truth and love. He did not shy away from the truth, did he? 
the truth of this woman, her past, her mistakes. He didn't shy away from that, but he also did not shy away from the truth of the gospel and sharing it with his words when the time was right. And he broke down cultural, religious, even political barriers to do it, all in love. When I was in high school uh, at Brentwood High, just a couple years ago, um, I had a lot more in common with the woman at the well than Nicodemus. You know, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't have a desire to live a godly life. I was much more interested in Friday nights than Sunday mornings, if you know what I mean. But then, oh, but then, a man, a man from this church stepped into my life. He didn't work here. This was just his church home. His name was Jason Swain. He was a young life leader at Brentwood High School. He stepped into my life and he began to live out all five of these things for me. He met me where I was. He met me at my freshman basketball practice. He wasn't a coach, he just came. You know who goes to freshman basketball practices? No one, no one does, but Swain did. I believe it's because God put it on his heart that he had to go to that freshman basketball practice because God knew I was there and I was thirsty. He accepted me as I was. My language was foul. My jokes were inappropriate. He never encouraged that out of me, but he certainly never made me feel shunned or looked down on or less than because of it. I could be myself around him, all of me. I didn't have to hide who I was or the things I was doing on the weekends. I could be me around him. He engaged my story. Back when I was in high school, you only had your home phone and you could pay a little extra. You can get a little caller ID attachment. It was real nice. I can remember multiple times my phone ringing, the home phone, running up to it, looking on that little caller ID and seeing Jason Swain. He was calling for me. He was calling for me. Just to talk, hear how my day was, what I did this weekend, what I thought about the football game. He was the first Christian man to take an interest in me and my rowdy group of friends. He processed alongside me. He got me a Bible. He put a little note card in it and said, hey, let's read the book of John together. When you have a question, just write it on this note card. I filled that card up. I had so many questions. I'd sit on his couch, I'd bring it out. We'd just talk about it. He was patient in my questions, but, but more so, he was patient with my continued mistakes, my continued failings, my trips and falls, my behavior. He never, he never gave up on me, never. And he shared the truth and love. The fountain of living water that was in him was bubbling and it began to slowly trickle over onto my thirsty heart. When I was at a Young Life camp, Sharp Top Cove, I heard the gospel and it all clicked into place. Everything he'd been showing me, we'd been talking about, it's like it all just clicked into place. And I drank deep, deep of the living water of God's great love for me. And I started my relationship with Jesus. Swain, he took me to this church. He began to disciple me, giving me vision for my friends saying, hey, 
some of your friends, some of your classmates who don't know Jesus, you can be a fountain of living water for them. I was like, what? I can? You believed in me. And I'm so grateful. What does it look like for us as a church? When I say us, I don't, I'm not just talking about Rob and Lloyd. I'm talking about us. I'm just one of you. For us as a church to be fountains of living water for people in our lives, to, to live out those five things to people in our day-to-day life. I feel like fellowship as a church is naturally going to attract and draw in the Nicodemuses of Williamson County. Those who are kind of raised in church, have a hunger for God and want to grow in their relationship with him. And that is so important. But I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that also spends time at wells. Spends time around thirsty people people who are walking in darkness, people who are making bad choices, people who are trapped in sin, living in rebellion, people who don't think like us, don't act like us, who wouldn't just naturally walk in this room. And you know, that gets messy. I know, that gets messy. But Jesus always moved towards messes and messy people, did he not? That's because it's hard It's hard to offer living water to those we are not around, right? So may God give us eyes to see people he is placing in our paths. People who are thirsting and searching for this living water in all the wrong places. Maybe it's a coworker, an employee or a boss. Maybe it's one of your kid's teachers or a mom whose kid your kid has playdates with. Maybe it's a classmate, a babysitter. Maybe it's a dad you coach a sport with or a family member. There are so many people. There are so many people in this community that are just waiting for someone to take an interest in them, step into their life, to befriend them, to genuinely care about them in a way that points to the living water. But I don't want us to miss this. I'm almost done. Before we can focus on them and their hearts, it starts with ours. It starts with ours. Our hearts must first be quenched and continually quenched by the living water found in the bottomless well of the love of Jesus. How is your heart today? Do you have any kind of hidden need or thirst or hurt that you need to just bring to Jesus? Do you know the love of your creator in such a way, such a real and personal and intimate way that your heart is being quenched because that is Jesus's offer for anyone and for everyone. If it's for this woman, it's for us too. So for you this morning, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, you just need to take a drink, just a big gulp of the living water of God's great love for you. 
let that living water into the cracks and broken pieces of your heart. Let it just do its thing. The God of the universe is crazy about you. He's crazy about you. And his living water is bottomless. Come and drink and keep drinking. He's crazy about you. As I bring the band out um, to close us, this is my prayer, my hope, is that God would send us, not someone else, God would send us as fountains of living water into our community, to the people he is placing in our paths who are thirsting to know the love of their creator, whether they know it or not. Who might that be for you? Let me pray in that effort. God, thank you. Thank you that you offer the only water that satisfies our thirsty souls and hearts. It's found in you. I pray that we would drink deep, whether for the first time or the thousandth time. We would drink deep of that water. And God, would you turn us into fountains of living water for those you are putting on our paths who are thirsting to know your great love. I pray all this in your son's name, amen.